Morning. Morning. My name is Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Resurrection Church. In first service, Jessica, who's our kids director, finished, told everyone, close your eyes. And at first I was like, wow, uh, that's, that's very different um, for an adult service. But then everyone closed their eyes and I was like, it works. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna learn some stuff. We're, uh, we're in the last sermon in the book of Ephesians. It's taken us 18 months or so to get through this book. We've been kind of doing it on and off. And uh, we're, we're on the last like four verses. Let me read them to you real quick and then we'll just talk about this. Uh, Ephesians 6, 19 through 23 says this. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've been going through this uh, book now for 18 months or so uh, because it has all of these instructions about life as a church. And when we started a year and a half ago, part of the reason we started in this book was we really wanted to take a closer look at how the Bible describes people doing church, going about church. And so the first three books of Ephesians, or I'm sorry, the first three chapters of Ephesians, Ephesians chapters one, two, and three, are Paul just just diving into how good God is. And and what you can see is almost this angst in Paul of like, I don't think you get it. You ever ever been trying to describe something to somebody and they keep agreeing with you and you're like, no, you don't get it? They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, no, you don't get it yet. Because if you got it, things would change. Do you know what I'm saying? Like if you... If you really understood this, things would change. They're like, yeah, I totally get it. You're like, no, things haven't changed, so you don't get it. And, and that's what Paul said for three chapters. He's just talking about like God is, he, God is better than you're giving him credit for. Jesus loves you more than you think he does. The riches of heaven are greater than you, th- they're worth more than you think that. And he just keeps going, three chapters of this, right? Just open up Ephesians 1 and you're like, Man, this guy is, and then you turn up, oh, he's, whoa, and he just keep going, and he keeps doubling down and tripling down, trying to get you to wrap your mind around how good God is and how much he loves you and how much he has in store for you in a life with Christ. And then you get to chapter four, and I know I say I have a lot of favorite stories in the Bible. It's true. They're all my favorite story. But chapter four is a chapter, is the best chapter in the Bible. Ephesians chapter four is the best chapter in the Bible. Fight me. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. (laughs) It's the best chapter because what Paul does is three chapters of just trying to get you to wrap your your perspective around how good God is. And then he says, and if this is true, and it is, if, if you get this, then go do this. And it's the rubber meets the road. If all of this about God, if all of this about eternity, if all of this about creation, if all of this about the afterlife, if all of this about relationship with God is true, then do this. And it's impossible. That's right. You read Ephesians chapter four and you're like, there's no way. There's no way. Apart from Christ. 
it's impossible. Because it starts talking about submitting to other people and putting up with them and not just putting up with them, but loving them. Oh, you know what I mean about, okay, you've heard this probably about church. Someone's like, oh, um, you know, how's the church? You're like, oh, it's great, except for the people. <laughs> Man, people are messy. And then we all get together, we bring all of our messes together. So, so chapter four is all about like, okay, now if this is true, live like this. And here's essentially the, the, what Paul establishes in Ephesians. And, and you see this throughout the Bible. And if you haven't got this about the Christian life, you need to see this. What Paul is saying is, listen, until this vertical relationship with God is right, none of these horizontal relationships are going to work well. Until this vertical relationship between you and God begins to be repaired, begins to be healed, once he saves you, puts his spirit in you, begins to transform you, this is all dysfunction. And you can, we could look at practical ways to illustrate this, but I'll just tell you as a marriage counselor, if you've ever tried to do marriage counseling for a couple that is not saved, it is so hard because there's no concept of grace. It's just all like, what's in it for me? And you're like, oh boy, this is gonna be a doozy. What Paul is saying is, listen, you, this has to be right. And when, when this changes, everything changes. When this relationship strengthens, there's a ripple effect all the way out to all of the lasting and, and, and even temporary relationships in your life. They will all be impacted. They will all be influenced by this vertical relationship. So chapter four is the start of the horizontal relationships, the implication of the vertical relationship being healed by God. And as it changes, changing how we treat one another. And then because you probably didn't get it, because I didn't, right? You read chapter four and you're like, yeah, that sounds great. And he's like, no, you still didn't get it. And he's like, what I mean is, this is how you should treat your wife. What I mean is, this is how you should serve your husband. What I, and he goes through all of your relationships because it's so easy to be like, I totally get that. And you're like, no, I'm, I'm watching your life. You don't get that. And so he walks through marriages and he walks through parenting and he walks through your workplace and, and he just gets into each of your relationships and he practically goes, listen, first of all, I told you why. And then I told you how, and now I'm specifically just like a bulleted list, just going through all your relationships and going dysfunctional, 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 dysfunctional. And I'm explaining how this truth about God will now flow out of that relationship and impact every other relationship in your life. So we go through all of five and most of six, and he's just made his way through all of our business. He's just opened up all our mail and read all the stuff and, and walked through that. And you get to about halfway through six. And you're like, enough. And, and probably it should be the end of the book about halfway through Ephesians six. Like he's kind of done. And then he has an idea and he just keeps going. It's kind of like one of my sermons. And he's like, I know, you need an illustration about a soldier because that's totally gonna help. And so we, we take off into what has been this series, which is this whole description about how, listen, you're, you're not living a comfortable life in Bakersfield, California. You're on a battlefield. There's spiritual warfare that's going on all around you. You underestimate it. 
you probably aren't actually using the armor and the weapons that God has gifted you with and granted you and is trying to train you in. You're probably attacking the wrong enemy most of the time. You're probably abandoning the soldiers by your side that were there for your benefit anyways because you think you're Rambo and you're running off like a fool on your own and falling into dysfunction, right? He's just walking through all this and you're like, oh, yep, I can see myself in that too. And then you get to the very end here and he says, this, he says, and also for me, and, and the only way also for me makes sense, that's the start of verse 19, is if you go back and realize that in 18, he asked for you, the church, to pray for leaders, to pray for others, to pray. He also had a series of prayer requests. And then he says, and by the way, also for me. Well, he's asking if you will pray for him. Now, I just find that a, a little bit interesting because like, if you met Paul, having even known who he was then, even, even back then, before like 2,000 years of reading his letters, he's a pretty, I mean, he's a church leader. He's an apostle. He's planted more churches than anybody else. He spread the gospel farther than anybody else. He's gone all over the known universe at that point to spread the gospel. He's a, he's a pretty powerful guy, even inside the newly emerged Christian church. You're not praying for Paul. You're asking Paul to pray for you. Like his words have mighty power. He's done miracles. He's, he's healed the sick. He's cast out demons. Paul, will you pray for me? He's like, no, I need you to pray for me. Uh, Man, I usually forget to pray for my chicken before lunch. <laughs> me? Yeah, I need you to pray for me. Christian leaders desire your prayers, church. We, we desire them. We need them. Pastors, elders, deacons, teachers, staff members, volunteers, we, we, we desire your prayers. The, the, the work of ministry is to serve you. It, there, there is no product in the church. It's you. You're the product. If you turn out bad, oh my goodness, we got nothing else. There's no plan B. You're plan A, B, and C. We, we love you. We want to equip you. We want to serve you. And we desperately want you to pray for us because we're praying for you. And what Paul's about to do is he's actually about to write out, and I think this is easily missed. He's going to write out, specific things that he'd like the church to pray for him about that he's anxious about. He probably shouldn't be, but he is. And it's very, I think it's natural to read why he would be anxious about them, but he's admitting that he'd like prayer about them. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, here's Paul in a letter that he knows is going to go not just to the church in Ephesus, but to all these house churches. This could be read everywhere. He knows this and he's going to write about some personal stuff that he, he, he's anxious about and that he, he likes some prayer about. And he knows every, it's going to get really public. It's going to be really messy. And it just got me on this weird thought. And then I saw this morning. So we have a church discord where we, we, we you know, exchange messages and we talk to volunteers and we pray for people and we have meetings and it's a really cool online community. Um, but I'm in some other discords and I'm in this discord where people don't use their real names. You know, so there's like some person named Cat Lover 58 I'm, I'm assuming that's females. I'm pretty sure guys don't like cats, but I don't know who that is. And there's a prayer request channel on that, on, in that Discord and it says, please pray for me. I have an unspoken prayer request. The flip is an unspoken prayer request. Cat lover 58. Okay, I don't know you. I don't know where you live. I don't know your name. And now I don't even know what to pray for you about. 
hey, Lord, please help cat uh, cat lover 58 with whatever their thing is and your will be done. What is that? I've read the New Testament a lot of times. I can tell you right now, I, I, I cannot recall them saying, I've got an unspoken prayer request. I'm pretty sure we made that up. And, and I, I'm pretty sure we made that up because what happened was we got into the church world and instead of coming into church and thinking, this is where I can be vulnerable and be encouraged and, and, and have brothers and sisters encourage me and, 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 and man, I can relax off the battlefield. We came in here thinking we had to put on our nicest clothes and act like we had it all together even though we were fighting on the trip over. And so if I gave you the real prayer request, you might think differently of me, so I have an unspoken prayer request. Fool, you don't know what I think about you. (laughs) Unspoken prayer request? Can you imagine, Paul? Man, here's the details of how great God is and how much we don't deserve him and how terrible I am and how great he is, but I have an unspoken prayer request. Man, when I go to the Lord for you in prayer, I try to picture your face. I try desperately to remember your name. There are a lot of them. And I want to pray for specific things. So when I'm praying for you, I'm praying about your life and the things that are going on in your life and the struggles and the joys and the events and the circumstances. I am not praying for an unspoken prayer request because I don't know what that is. You don't come in here to be less vulnerable. You come in here to be more vulnerable. And, and, and listen, I understand there are going to be instances and experiences that you've had in churches where people have hurt you because of your vulnerability. I get that. I am sorry because people are mean and messy and sinful. But we come in here to open up. If you've ever sat in a group and you had that one person that didn't want to open up, it is so awkward. Everyone's like just pouring out their guts. I'm in a group one day. I think I shared that I'm in a group. And the first guy in the group in prayer request time goes, man, I, think I need you to pray for me. God's really showing me that I've been really, I'm really racist. And the whole group is just like, whoo, that is one way to come out of the gate. And everyone just starts sharing their stuff because it always takes somebody to be really vulnerable to say that it's okay for everyone else to be vulnerable. And then we get to the one guy, it was his first, his first week. And we've all just been sharing our guts. And he's like, I need you to pray for my grandma. She has bunions. <laughs> and listen, we prayed for his grandma's bunions. But let me just be honest. That boy was lying. He didn't want to be vulnerable. Paul is going to open up, even in this letter, that he knows everybody's going to read publicly. And he's going to begin talking about things that he has some anxiety about. Let me tell you some things you could pray for me and the elders about. If you so choose. For the elders, um, we, could re- we really need prayer in some, some things we're working on. We have, um, we have a great deal of unity and love that have developed in our elder room over the course of the last five or six years. And what we're really trying to work through right now is how we turn that into uh, action, how we turn that into proactivity, the, the, the distribution of, of, of leadership and, and, and work and responsibility and shared burden in this church is, is, there's a lot and we're trying to figure it out and we don't have the right balance yet and we're still working through what those things look like. Um, and you can praise the Lord for what he has done in our hearts with us. He has knit us together very well through some difficult seasons. 
We have some really good elders, y'all. And you should pray for them. You should pray for us. We want to be leaders who are urgent. We feel angst that God is coming again and he's given us a charge of things to do. We wanna be obedient to his prompting and we wanna be sensitive as the Holy Spirit moves. We wanna stay uh, motivated and passionate and urgent and a little bit restless and stirred up because I think that's a, a wonderful way to pursue the Lord. For me, I wanna be a better prayer. I don't actually know if that's a word, prayer, prayer, prayer. Anyways, whether it's a word or not, I wanna be a better prayer. And I find myself uh, after a little bit of time in prayer, always wanting to go do something. I gotta go do something. And it could be something really dumb, but I, just, I feel like I can't sit and just pray. And I wanna be better at that. Um, I wanna be better at my time management. I wanna be more sensitive to the Holy Spirit. When, when the Holy Spirit prompts me to do something, I wanna do it. It's usually not something easy. Have you noticed that how the Holy Spirit works? Very annoying. Yeah. Um, so what, is, what does Paul ask for prayer about? Because he's under arrest. He's actually under house arrest as he's writing this letter, awaiting trial. And he's gone through a lot of persecution for his faith. And so it'd be very logical to think, you know what he's gonna ask for prayer about is uh, for his freedom. I mean, if you were in jail, what are you praying about? <laughs> God, are you gonna get me out of this mess? God, are you gonna, you gonna, you gonna give me a favorable trial? God, are you gonna release me? God, are you gonna put me back on the mission field? I mean, in Paul's life, he's gonna go through multiple court cases and arrests. He's gonna be stoned, he's gonna be whipped, he's gonna be beaten, he's gonna be shipwrecked twice, snake bitten, thrown out of towns, slandered, hungry, thirsty, put in stocks, in prison, falsely accused. And here's what he asked God for. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that, it may, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. That is quite a prayer request and it's not about getting out. Why would Paul need words given to him? I mean, he has a lot of words. Have you read them? There's that no shortage of words. Inspired by God. 2,000 years later, we're still reading Paul's words. Why does he need words given to him when he's on trial or when he's in public? Um, Paul is expressing something that 30 years before he wrote this letter, we heard Jesus say to his disciples, even though Paul wasn't there at the time. In Mark 13, we hear Jesus say this in verse nine, be, but be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. Does that sound familiar? 30 years later, this is what's happening to Paul. To bear witness before them and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So Paul is in prison awaiting trial, and he asks for prayer from the church in Ephesus that we would pray for him to be given the words by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel when he goes out to trial or goes out to meet with the governor or the next uh, governor in, in the order he's going through the, this trial system. And 
This is exactly what Jesus told his disciples would happen three decades before then. That the Holy Spirit would give them the words they should say when they were on trial or when they were put in front of a council. Now, uh, that may sound like a very interesting thing, the Holy Spirit giving words. I've learned a lot about preaching over the past two years or so. Um, the first seven or eight years that I was ordained as a minister, I only preached maybe about eight times a year. That's about once every six to seven weeks. And the best part of that nice, slow, infrequent pace is that people are much more tolerant of bad preaching when they don't have to hear it very often. <laughs> Works great. And then all of a sudden, about 18 months ago, uh, I suddenly had to preach almost all the time for a while and, and quite frequently. And so I had to learn a lot about preaching. God had a lot of things to teach me. And one of the things that God has taught me over the past two years or so of learning how to preach is this. Um, no matter how much I study and prepare for a sermon, God's presence is the only thing that makes a sermon good. Man, you can study for hours. And then you get to the sermon and you're like, I, that was awful. It doesn't mean don't study. It does mean that apart from his power, I can't study my way into a good sermon. There's a tough tension there. I can't massage words into a shape that will have any lasting power in your life. At my very best, if I put together my most eloquent sermon... I might be able to come up with some, some concepts that would inspire you that would, might last till lunch. Because there's no power in my words. There's no power in my persuasion. I could give you a great TED talk. You'd forget about it by Monday. That's not preaching. God shows up as we proclaim the gospel and he begins to do things into the listener. The Holy Spirit does work, sometimes almost regardless of what you said. I've had someone come up and tell me this whole thing, like, Pastor, and they, they're like, I learned, and they, they talk about all this stuff that God told them during the service, and I'm like, I don't preach on any of that. I mean, we ain't even in the same book of the Bible. And I'm like, great. I'm glad God did work. You didn't hear my words. That's okay. So what does that mean? It doesn't mean I, I, I skip studying. It doesn't mean I, I don't read through the commentaries and, and write out sermons and, 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 and do my best to deliver those words. It doesn't mean any of those things at all. What it means, because that would be lazy. That would be neglectful. I don't just show up unprepared. That would be irreverent. But, but there's this tension where even though I study really hard, God has to do the work. And so what I find myself doing is every Sunday, somewhere before my sermon, sometimes it's when I'm driving, uh, sometimes it's at my office when I'm studying real early, sometimes it's on the pew before one of the sermons. I, every, every single Sunday before I preach, I, I, I start talking to God. I say, God, will you remove the words from me that I've put in here and only deliver the words that you want heard. And there are times where I thought I had like a banger of a paragraph in a sermon and I get there and God's like, uh-uh. Man, that's like 45 minutes of work. Uh-uh. Okay. Ugh. And then there's times where you're like, it's not in your sermon at all. And God's like, hey, um, tell them about the time that you were kind of angry about losing at a video game. And so you yelled at your kid. Uh, God, I don't think that's really appropriate. Right. I said, tell them about the time 
that you were frustrated and you took it out on your kid. Um, listen, Daniel, tell them about, oh, that was yesterday, by the way. Because the actual root behind preaching is this. And this is gonna be the same for evangelism. This is gonna be saying about proclaiming the gospel, whether you're doing it one-on-one with somebody at work, whether you're at the gym, whether you're just telling somebody, you're answering a question, you, you stop the server in the middle of the restaurant, like my dad does all the time, to start praying for him, whatever it is, is this. My job is to study and study and study and pursue the Lord passionately and, and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and just do what it tells me to do and, and allow the Spirit to convict me of sin and have to deal with that sin and then stand up here so that when I open my mouth, you hear as little as possible that Daniel came up with and as much as possible of what the work that God's doing in me spilling back out. Because the last thing that you need that would be helpful for you is more Daniel. You don't need to know if Daniel's good enough. You need to know that Jesus is good enough. And so what Paul is essentially saying is, listen, I have some anxiety about going on trial, but I know that the formula that the Spirit uses is to get there, love the Lord, open my mouth, and let God speak through me. And we're going to spend a bunch of time this year talking about what is essentially evangelism. It's telling our stories and talking about the Lord. And listen, what dominates your life is what spills back out of your mouth. From the abundance of the heart speaks the tongue. So what you pursue, where you put your affection, where you put your energy, where you put your mind, what you, where you put your, 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 your real life pursuit is what's going to bubble back up and spill back out. What are you pursuing? What dominates your thought life? What captivates your imagination? What consumes your energy? Those things, that's what you worship. And what you worship will spill right back out of your mouth. What does Paul want prayer to have the words to proclaim? The mystery of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel. Paul loved this phrase, mystery of the gospel. I like it because the thing about him using this, he uses it in multiple books in the New Testament and letters. He, he talks about the mystery of Christ and the mystery of the gospel. Is that the gospel has these layers and you never actually get to the bottom of the, the, the gospel. Just about the time that you think you have the gospel figured out, you learn something new. Early on in your Christian life, you think the gospel is just this idea that Jesus saves you about his, his death and burial and resurrection. And you think like, once you get that, you'll learn, you'll learn more. Like there's something other than that, but it's, it's that the gospel is actually deeper than you thought it was. I had a pastor who used to say, you never graduate from the gospel. You just keep learning more about it. It's like a, it's like a late night infomercial. Everybody had the TV on way too late at night and they're trying to sell you something and they're like, but wait, there's more. It's the gospel, but wait, there's more. And you just keep learning more about the gospel. Listen to Paul, back in Ephesians 3, he talks about this when he says this. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, 
which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So, so one layer of the gospel early in the, in the first century was this idea that, that God came not just to save Jews, but to save all of humanity. And that regardless of race, regardless of background, regardless of ethnicity, God's grace and mercy was available to all men and women. But that was just the, the first layer. But wait, there's more. Paul would come back in Colossians 1, 25 through 29, and he'd say this about the mystery of the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, meaning that it was hidden, that we, we couldn't see it all, that, that the truth of the gospel had to be revealed to us, fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, and that he powerfully works within me. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The, the mystery, uh, the, the solution of how man would somehow, some way be able to finally commune with God again, be in relationship with God despite the fall. So, so the story goes, Garden of Eden is perfect and we mess up, sin enters the world. With sin, death. With death, now destruction. Listen, it is, it is impossible to deny that we live in a broken world. I don't care if you believe in God or not. Turn on the news. Which news? It doesn't matter. Turn on Fox News, discouraging. Turn on MSNBC, discouraging. Turn on something in the middle, discouraging. Everything's broken. If you want to be depressed, it is a click away. But there was a time when there was no death. There was a, there was a time when there was no sin. There was a time when there was no cancer. There was a time when there, when there was no rape. There was a time when there was no... There was a perfect time. I want to go back there. Y'all think... A house in a gated community on the golf course is nice. I want the Garden of Eden. There's no HOAs. I want to go back there. And in fact, the Bible would say all of creation is groaning for Christ to come again and reconcile this thing. It's busted. The mystery is, how's he going to fix it? It's been the question since sin entered the world. How will he do it? When will he do it? Christ in you, the hope of glory. How will a broken, dark world know about the power and goodness and love of God? Christ in you, the hope of the world. Guys, our church leadership is not betting on having like a better executive plan than anyone else, and that's gonna work. 
We're not betting on having, oh, we're just gonna have like the snazziest kids ministry ever and that's gonna solve all the problems or better worship or better facilities or better preaching or, or better anything. We're betting on you. You're plan A and plan B and plan C. Sorry. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The, the biblical recipe for church is not Christ in a pastor, a televangelist, some, some small group of really equipped, oh, we've got it all together and we're really holy priests or something. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Say me. That's who. That's the recipe. How's God going to do it? What's the mystery of the gospel? The mystery of the gospel is that when God saved you, even though you didn't deserve it, even though you were running from him, he saved you. He cleaned you up because you didn't clean yourself up. You didn't even want to clean yourself up. He saved you and made you want to clean yourself up. You still couldn't do it. He cleaned you up anyways. Put his spirit in you, begin to transform you and change you so that your desires would suddenly be like his desires and it would happen slowly, one degree of glory at a time so you could recognize his hand at work in your life and you can't take credit for it. Because if he did it all at once, we'd take credit for it. And he'd slowly change you to be more and more and more like him so that the people around you would notice and look at you and go, what happened? And the work of the spirit in your life would be such that you would know, I can't take credit for this. He did it. He did it. The mystery of the gospel is that he wanted me. He wanted you. Why? I have no idea. He shouldn't want me. I don't even want me. But he does. He does. And he's so jealous over you that he put his spirit in you. And he's so jealous over the spirit that he put in you that he wants your affection. He wants all of it. He doesn't want your half-hearted, lukewarm affection. He wants your whole life. He wants all of your affection. He wants all of your heart. And the parts that you hold back, he will continue to convict you about until you give those to him too. Because he's a jealous God and he doesn't mind telling you that he's a jealous God. Because he loves you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He wants all of the worship and all the energy in your life. And listen, I'm so weak that even after he saved me, I still am so much of a mess that I can't even want him the way I should. And he supplies the faith to do that too. He supplies the power and the authority to change me and my will to want him more. The hope of this world is Christ in you and I. So Paul is saying, pray for me. Pray for me that I don't chicken out and forget the only reason that I'm still on earth, which is to proclaim this good news, to explain this gospel, to talk about this mystery of Christ in you, to show people through words and actions that Christ isn't just, just, just enough. He's more than you could ever imagine. And he'll finish with saying this, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Now, Paul's in prison. He's technically in house arrest, so he's not in chains at the moment he's writing this, but he's in metaphorical chains in that not only is he in prison, but Paul will say again and again, I'm not in charge of my own life. When I gave my life to Jesus, when I put my faith in Christ, it'd be like um, 
you hand over leadership of your life is like you getting out of the driver's seat of the car, except, let me be honest, you're not supposed to be in the passenger seat of the car when you give over the, the wheel to Jesus. And Jesus is not your stinking co-pilot. You're supposed to be in the back seat, letting God drive your life. Let me tell you what we're really good at as American Christians. We're really good at sitting in the, uh, the seat next to Jesus, grabbing hold of the wheel every once in a while, because we don't like where he's taking us, because it looks a little bit like, oh, Jesus, you know, and then we get ourselves in a wreck and we blame Jesus. Paul says, I'm an ambassador in chains. Number one, I'm only here to proclaim the gospel. If it weren't for proclaiming the gospel, Jesus just take me home right now. And two, I'm in chains, meaning I'm compelled to do this. I couldn't imagine doing anything other than this. Christian, if you've put your faith in Jesus, you can't live your life and make decisions based on worldly priorities anymore. So, so, so I, I, we were talking in my uh, men's group on Friday morning the other day. We, we meet for breakfast. Our, our small group does, the men. And we get together and then we'll just talk. And so I had run across this verse and I'm really confused by the one. It's Jesus' parable in Luke where he says, that there's a wealthy man who had so much harvest that he didn't know what to do. So he, he said, I'm gonna tear down my barns and build even bigger barns to store all of my riches. And then he talks to himself in the third person, which is always a sign you're in for trouble. He says, what should I do? Soul, here's what I'll do. I'll eat, drink, and be merry. So he, and then Jesus says, you fool, this very night, I'm gonna take your life from you. And I'm like, how do you know if you're that guy? Like, if you live in America and you have a job, you're in like the top 3% of income earners in the world. So you're already ultra wealthy. You know that, right? You, you, you always think of yourself as ultra rich. No, we always complain that we don't have more. How do I know? If I'm already really wealthy by worldly standards, how do I know if I'm that guy in that story? How, how, do, how, do, I, how do I know if I'm not putting my faith in, in, in the Lord? And somebody at our table said, well, do you ever have to sit around and wonder what to do with your money? Oh, should I buy that new boat? Should I buy a new RV? Maybe I'll retire early. Maybe I'll buy a second house. And I was like, oh man, who leads my life? Where do those decisions come from? Am I sensitively following the work of God as he leads me and doing the things that he shows me to do? Or am I sitting with this separate agenda where I decide what the goals of my life are, what the accomplishments of my life are, what I'd like to get done. And every once in a while, I let God read my list. What do you think? Any feedback? Paul's saying, look, I'm here to proclaim the gospel. If it were for anything else, Jesus would take me home. Christian, you ready? You're here to proclaim the gospel. If it was for anything else, you might as well go home. This ain't your best life. Your best life is to come. If you're living this life like your best life, you're living it from the wrong purposes and the wrong priorities and the wrong reasons. And ultimately, when your life ends up in a train wreck and you wonder why, you'll go back to the fact that Jesus didn't actually have lordship of your life in the first place. You did. Take your hands off the steering wheel. For which I am ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. There's uh, just this really rough tension in the Bible where We've talked about it in other ways before, uh, truth and love, right? Truth, we're, we're called to tell the truth. Love, we're called to love people. How do I love, lovingly tell them a truth? 
How do I tell someone a truth that might hurt them when I love them, right? We, we've talked about this before. Well, what you're seeing here in Ephesians is Paul telling you to be bold and gentle. Uh, if you go to the store to buy some coffee, you have bold flavor and you have morning blend. They are not the same thing. You don't have bold, mild flavor. They're opposite. But yet in the Bible, again and again, we see this idea of being aggressively gentle. How can I be bold and gentle at the same time? This is the mystery of the gospel. I could live a life like a servant, humble, submitting to others, loving with others, walking with them through their trials, being there for them, caring for them, empathizing with them, and never wavering from the truth at the same time. It's the tension of the gospel. It's part of the mystery. We're going to spend, over the course of the next six months, at least three different series in things that are actually very evangelistic. They're meant to equip you for the work of evangelism. The first one is Romans Road. We're going to spend five weeks talking about this, this thing called the Romans Road, which is five verses in Romans that lead you down an explanation of what the gospel is. And it's been used for years, but we're actually going to talk to you about what it looks like to find each of those elements in your own story, in your own life, in how God has worked in and through you so that when you're talking to somebody, not just about the truths of scripture, you don't just simply point at the Bible. You get to point at yourself and say, let me show you what this meant to me or where this actually applied in my life. So we're gonna spend five weeks on that. We're gonna spend three weeks in the second half of John chapter one. And we're going to talk about how Jesus invited people into ministry. And we're just going to look at how he did it and talk about how we would do it the same way. Over the summer, we're going to spend a long time looking at some real key doctrinal elements of the Christian faith. Because in order to explain things and have a great foundation to talk about the truths of the Bible, it would be really good if we knew the truths of the Bible. Amen? Over the summer, we're going to spend some time going through the Apostles' Creed just as a way to talk about some of the fundamental truths of the Bible and truths of Scripture um, so that we're more prepared and we're more equipped. All of those things are intended to give us a skill set and a familiarity to talk about the bold proclamation of the gospel for people in a dark and broken, distorted world. Here's the problem. You ready for the problem? No one's ready for the problem. Here's the problem. You can have all the equipping in the world, but if you aren't getting hungrier and building more of a desire to follow Jesus, none of it matters. You can have all the knowledge and all the skill and all the competencies in the world, but ultimately, it is about how you desire Jesus, how you're pursuing Jesus, how you're allowing Jesus to come in and the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin, encourage you, prompt you, move you, direct you, lead you into things that you then could put all those skills to use. So your participation over the course of the next six months in these series is twofold. Number one, you gotta show up because it would be helpful to actually hear the things that we say, just logical. But here's the second thing. I can't make you love Jesus. If I could, I would. Like if there was a secret stick on a late night TV show that I could buy and just bop you, right? I would have it at all the doors so you couldn't get out. Like you'd be running and I'd be bopping. But they don't sell one of those. So I can't get it. I can't make you fall in love with Jesus. I can't make you want him more. 
but you can. You just have to ask him. God says, if you'll seek me with your heart, you'll find me. If you ask God to build a hunger in you, he will. If you ask God to reveal himself to you, he will. If you ask God to stoke up the passion and the fire and the affection in your life for him, he will. He wants those requests and it's okay. It's okay to emotionally not have those feelings at times, know that your tank feels like it's on empty and realize it's not there. I know it's not there and ask him and watch him respond. And, and, and when you do, you're going to find opportunities to do things. You ready for it? I'm just telling you, this is coming. If you do this, it's coming. You're going to find opportunities to build relationships. The moment you begin to ask God to stir something in you, you will find opportunities to build relationships because he stirs those things by putting people in your life to run along with you, to stir you up, to encourage you, to convict you, to run the race with you. So all of a sudden you ask Jesus, I want you to stir this up. And people start showing up and asking weird questions. the Holy Spirit will begin to convict you of some stuff. And if I'm being really honest, the Holy Spirit is probably already convicting you of those things. You've gotten really good at not listening. We're really good at walking around like this. God, I just don't hear you. I just, man, if you would just speak to me, boy, really want to hear from you, Lord. When you begin to talk to God about stirring you up, about showing you and revealing more of himself to you, it's amazing how that thing that he's convicted you of 17 times, the 18th time is like, oh, oh, I have to, I'm not adding something in my life in order to, to really stoke up the embers and the flames of my pursuit. I'm going to have to remove something something that has sucked my affection out of my life, something where my energy and my affection was supposed to go to Jesus, but I've been giving it to blank. And for some of you, you could already fill in the blank. You already know what it is because God's already been talking to you about it. And you just gotten really good at numbing the noise down so you don't have to hear it. And there's a point where if you really want to feel and experience a growing presence of the Lord, you're going to have to actually listen to the thing that he keeps telling you. Does that make sense? Are you picking up what I'm laying down? If you want more of Jesus, you're going to actually have to respond when he talks to you. And listen, if it were easy, he wouldn't have to talk to you. You'd do it anyways. If you wanted to do it, you would already stumbled your way into it. It's probably a thing you're fighting. Welcome to the Christian life. Jump in, the water's fine. I'm gonna pray for you. What I'd like you to do, because I, I heard this works, is close your eyes. <laughs> and all I want you to do is this. I just want you to think, I want you to pray this prayer if you're willing to pray this prayer. I know it's a dangerous prayer, so if you're not willing to pray this prayer, it's totally fine. You don't have to lie about it. No one's going to be looking. I can't even see anything with these lights. You're going to close your eyes. You're going to pray this prayer. God, I, I want you to reveal more of your presence to me. I, I, I want you to stir up in me more of a passion, more of a desire, more of a pursuit. I want to palpably be able to know your presence is here, and I want you to change me to want you more. And I, if I'm really honest, I'm just ashamed that I don't want you more. And as you're praying that, I believe... God is going to begin to, to talk to you about things you've got to either remove from your life or you've got to add to your life. And they're not necessarily going to be the same for any of us, and that's totally fine. But I, whatever those are, I want you to write that down somewhere, or I want you to go share that with somebody that you trust. And then over the course of the next week or two, I want you to try to put that into practice, because that's what we do. God speaks, we obey. God speaks, we obey. 
And it matters. Here's why it matters. Because Christ in you is the hope of glory. You're all I got. You're it. You're plan A, plan B, and plan C. And if you want to walk in and live in the contentment and the peace that is a relationship with God where he is present in your life and he's active and he's overwhelming, you're going to have to respond and do what he says. Let's pray. Bow your heads with me. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you speak through your word to us in all sorts of various ways, God. Sometimes ways we, we just, it's a mystery. Thank you for loving us when we didn't love you. Thank you for loving us now when we're just ambivalent about you. Going through the motions, God. We don't feel any of, any of these, these feelings of passion are stirred up. It just feels dead and you loved us anyways, God. You chase us down anyways. You don't give up on us. God, thank you for this church and the people here, those that want to know you more. God, those of us that want to be changed, that want you to do work in our lives, God, I thank you for the passion that you're going to grow in the hearts of this church, God. I thank you for the people in here. They're going to walk away from an addiction. They're going to walk away from a habit. They're going to walk away from some morally neutral thing that wasn't bad or good, but was sucking their affection away from you, God. I thank you for the relationships that are going to be formed because people make a commitment, God, to be observant and to respond where you move and to build close community inside this church. I thank you, God, for loving us. I thank you for your son, how much we don't deserve him, how much we couldn't have earned any of this. And you love this enough to give it to us anyways, God. I ask that your people respond as you prompt them, God, as you move in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Our pastors and prayer team and elders are going to be up here to pray with you. If you have uh, anything that needs prayer, I will begrudgingly even pray for your unspoken prayer request. We just want to pray for you and love on you. And so as we sing this song, feel free to come up here and receive prayer and talk to us. We love you. We'll see you soon.